This conversation between Carol Schwartz and Cordelia Fine was recorded at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, at a special event produced by Truwala Foundation lead partner and the University of Melbourne program partner for ACCA's exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism. Can everyone hear me? Great. Great. Good acoustics in this room. Thank you so much, Max. It's really fabulous. Um, I hope you've all had a chance to uh, go through the exhibition because it's a remarkable exhibition. Um, and when Max came to talk to me about becoming involved, um, I couldn't refuse. The idea was so compelling. I mean, feminist art in Australia. Um, we, we need to see more of it and celebrate more of it. It's fabulous. And I think you'll all agree that the art here is fantastic. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Um, thank you very much for coming. I'm Carol Schwartz. I'm the chairman of the Women's Leadership Institute Australia and, um, and the founding chair. And um, I'd like to welcome you all here today and our partners, Melbourne University. I must say Melbourne University has been a fantastic partner for us in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of creative opportunities, one of them being our Pathways to Politics course. And if you don't know about that and if you know fabulous women who should be putting themselves forward for political life, please recommend to them to have a look at Pathways to Politics. It's a fabulous course at Melbourne Uni. So I better get a bit formal now. Um, so firstly, I would like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional land of the Boon and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. And I'd formally like to thank you, Max, and your fabulous team at ACCA for giving us the opportunity to partner with you in this fantastic exhibition. And if you start seeing Max slumping in his chair, it's because he's just come off a 27-hour flight from Mexico. So, Max, we really appreciate you <laughs> being here with us. Thank you very, very much. Um, and I also want to um, acknowledge Sarah Buckley, who's the executive director of the Trawalla Foundation, which is um, my family foundation, and also one of our trustees is here, Dennis Moriarty, um, because it's through the Trawalla Foundation that we're able to fund um, partnerships with fabulous um, uh, organisations like ACCA. So thank you very much, Sarah, Dennis, for, for your support for this. And, um, well, tonight I am absolutely thrilled to be in conversation with my friend and colleague, Cordelia Fine. Now, I've, I first met Cordelia, how long ago was it now? When did you write Delusions of Gender? It was about 10 years ago. Right. I so, I was introduced to Cordelia by Professor Bob Wood. Um, that was right, wasn't it? And um, he said to me, I need you to meet this fantastic woman who's just written a brilliant book called Delusions of Gender. And it is a fantastic book. And it was the start of a great relationship, I think, Cordelia, um, not only with Melbourne University and... You were then at the Melbourne Business School, I think. That's right. Yeah. Um, and um, it's... Cordelia has just gone from strength to strength, and I'd like to 
read uh, something a little bit more formal about Cordelia to you. So, Cordelia is an academic psychologist and writer and described by critics as a brilliant feminist critic of the neurosciences. Cordelia's latest book, Testosterone Rex, won the Royal Society Insight Investment Science Book Prize 2017, which is like the Booker Prize in her field. I can't tell you how significant that prize is. And for us as Australians to have uh, someone of the calibre of Cordelia winning that prize is absolutely massive. So we're, we're all basking in the reflected glory of your victory. Uh, Cordelia also wrote, as I mentioned, Delusions of Gender and a Mind of Its Own. And she's a regular contributor to the media, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Monthly and New Statements. I, sh I should also say that Cordelia um, did a podcast with me on the Melbourne University uh, podcast, The Policy Shop, which is a fantastic podcast. If you're into podcasts, I suggest you download that one. Uh, Glyn Davis does wonderful interviews, I think every, what, three to four weeks, um, on really contemporary issues that are facing Australia and Australians. And uh, we did a debate with David Gonski on quotas, which is a favourite topic of mine. <laughs> so Cordelia studied ex <coughs> excuse me, experimental psychology at Oxford University, followed by a master's in criminology. What's an MPhil? Master's in Philosophy yes. in Criminology at Cambridge. She was awarded a PhD in Psychology from University College London. She has held research positions at Monash University, the ANU and Macquarie University and is now Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Melbourne. Cordelia is also the recipient of the inaugural Women's Leadership Institute Australia, which is our institute, research fellowship. Because again, we were absolutely thrilled when we were talking to Cordelia and she said, you know, I'm working on this book. And uh, we said, well, is there any way we can help? And so we were able to partner with her in um, giving her the time to take off actual teaching responsibilities and finish her book, which was fantastic. We really appreciated that, Cordelia. Not as much as I did. <laughs> um, oh, and uh, sorry, this is a real formality. Before we leap into our conversation, I just wanted to let the audience know, that's you guys, that this conversation is being recorded for podcast purposes. So, Cordelia... Huge congratulations on winning the prize for Testosterone Rex. The chair of the judging panel described it as, quote, a cracking critique of the men are from Mars, women are from Venus hypothesis. There clearly remains an entrenched societal view that fundamental differences do exist between the sexes. And this seems to be um, a critical part of the unfinished business for, for feminism. Now, why, why do you think these beliefs are so entrenched and, um, and how did your book challenge them? 
Well, I think I think that's a very difficult question because I think there's there's a sort of there's no single answer to why they're so entrenched. And sometimes when I'm in a kind of sympathetic and forgiving kind of mood, I think, well, you know, when you do look around society and you see that there are all these, you know, there's still this gender segregation in terms of the kinds of occupations that women and men go into. And, you know, as you look up, there are, you know, still in our egalitarian societies or supposedly egalitarian societies with 30 years of sex discrimination legislation, you still see many more men than women. And people tend to think that sort of extraordinary outcomes have extraordinary causes. And so there must be this sort of single powerful cause, biological sex, that creates these sort of fundamentally different natures that produce fundamentally different outcomes of, you know, masculine roles and, and, and feminine roles. And then at the same time, and of course this is my particular interest, we have had this sort of long-standing scientific story with a sort of evolutionary backdrop that says, look, evolution has just hardwired different kinds of predispositions into the male brain and into the female brain. And we know we can work really hard with our gender equality initiatives, but you know, it will only go so far because in the end we're we're going against we're going against nature. So and what I tried to do in my book was really say, actually, you know, that scientific hat is based on very out-of-date scientific models. So across a range of disciplines, from evolutionary science to neuroscience to behavioral science to the relationship between hormones and behavior, all of that science has been changing over the past decade since the last century in really exciting ways. And obviously the scientists who are leading the vanguard of those changes, they understand that that science has changed. But sometimes people in other disciplines haven't caught up with how other, other areas are looking at their um, at their sort of objective study, so to speak. So, you know, psychologists don't necessarily realize that evolutionary biology is about 30 years ahead of them. Um, and so, you know, in our little academic silos, this kind of scientific story uh, persists. But it's, it, you know, at the same time, it is actually slowly changing. But I think also there's a sort of, there's a comfort to this idea as well, because we can sort of say, look, you know, it's just how, it's how things are, are supposed to be. And gives one a, a way of feeling a bit, perhaps excusing oneself from all the, the hard work that, that still needs to be done to, to close all the various gaps that we have. So what, what do you say when someone comes to you and says, you know, my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, um, I give her only trucks and cars and fire engines to play with, and um, she dances around them like a ballerina and pretends to be a princess. What, what do you say to that? <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because that, that was one of the comments that was made by Lawrence Summers when he was um, president of Harvard University and he created the controversy around, you know, he said that one of the reasons that there are fewer women in these high-level scientific roles at universities is that partly they don't want to work the number of hours, Partly, they don't, they don't, they're not enough of them in that sort of genius end of the distribution. And third, they're just less interested in science. And he cited the example of his twin daughters that would sort of tuck mummy truck and daddy truck uh, up into bed. And it was interesting because when I, you know, I sent the book, the manuscript out to a number of academics to, you know, 
get feedback and peer review, and two of them said, oh, yeah, my, my sons did that too. And actually, my sons did that as well. So I think, you know, it's a sort of, one doesn't like to say it in polite conversation or at dinner parties, but, you know, anecdotes don't create data. So if I'm feeling in a really tedious mood, I might say to that person, well, actually, when you look at the data of lab studies, when you bring children of that age into the lab and you give them an array of toys uh, to play with, you know, boys' toys, girls' toys, and neutral toys, you actually find kids are interested, whether they're boys or girls, in playing with a whole heap of stuff. And you do see an average difference at around two to three years of age, but it's really, really small. So maybe 40% of the time, if you picked a boy and girl at random, you'd actually have the boy playing in a more feminine way than the girl and vice versa. And of course, the child's already been in the world for two years. They already know what a ballerina is, and they have probably noticed that they tend to be Angelinas rather than Angelos, for example. So, um, and you know, one can one can go further and further. By that point, you know, the person's usually walked away and found someone else to talk to. I have to admit. <laughs> I, I do like that that sort of polite but slightly grumpy response. You know, an anecdote. Anecdotes do not make data. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm going to remember that. Um, so I guess uh, you know, leap forward a little bit and. And as an extension to that, so um, one view that I think is fairly pervasive is that, and one view that you that you do address is that men are more risk-taking and women are more risk-averse, and this con continues to negatively impact on how women are viewed in the workplace. So, as in playing with certain toys, what what is the reality around men and women at risk? This, this was one of the most fascinating areas when I was researching in the book because the whole concept of risk-taking in, in psychology and economics is sort of falling to pieces. So we had, we had this sort of very simple view of risk-taking, which is that it's just, an, it's just a personality attribute. So mm. people are either a risk-taker or they're risk-averse or they're somewhere in the middle. And the assumption... And I, th and, and I suspect that that was that assumption came because it was seen as a masculine trait. So it was seen as a sort of uniform um, characteristic that would apply in all kinds of situations. And so when people were measuring risk-taking in questionnaires, they'd ask about all different kinds of risk-taking. You know, would you take this, would you, would you undergo this risky medical operation? Would you invest your, your money in these kinds of shares? Um, you know, would you jump off a bridge attached to a, a, a bungee rope and things like that? And, and they didn't actually get very useful results, and that turns out to be because people's risk-taking is very domain-specific. So someone who's very interested and very happy to take financial risks may not be someone who's very keen on taking physical risks and vice versa. So this sort of assumption that, you know, when in some studies you find that men are more risk-taking than women, uh, actually depends, first of all, not just on what domain of risk you're looking at, but it also, even within the domain, it actually starts to depend on what kinds of questions that you ask. Um, so, for example, in financial risk-taking, really the differences that, p that people have found have been pr fairly, fairly trivial, uh, and they're not even seen in, in all populations that you look at, particularly the kinds of, you know, women who are in, uh, you know, senior management positions and so on. 
Um, and sure, when you look at sort of physical risk-taking, there will be men who are, you know, on average you'll find that men are more willing to take those kinds of risks. But actually, one, one thing that we, that my colleagues and I realised is that people, because of this link in our minds between risk-taking and masculinity, that influences the kinds of questions that researchers come up with. So when they're thinking, okay, what risks do I ask about? They come up with things that, that are more strongly associated with, with men. And so my colleagues and I, we just decided to, to try and think a bit more creatively about different kinds of risks. And, um, and we found that when you do that, the, risk, the, the, the differences between men and women that you see in how, like, how, how much they'd be willing to take that kind of risk disappear or, or even reverse, so you start to see women being more risk-taking than men, even when you, as much as you can, objectively match the sort of de the degree object of objective risk that you're asking about that about. And I think that's really, it's something that, this has been something that I've been thinking about in relation to all the conversations that we've been having recently about, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace, for example, because, and, and often men's silence around that, because in a sense, you know, that being in a workplace which is rife with sexual harassment, you know, that's a form of risk-taking. You, you know, you want that career, you love that career, you want to progress, you're ambitious, and this is a risk that you just have to endure. And many women, you know, clearly are, are taking that risk. And at the same time, if you're a senior man kind of turning a blind eye to that kind of behaviour and not speaking up, that's a risk that you're not taking. So that's a form of kind of risk aversion. And, and I think because we see risk-taking in such a gendered way, we, we don't kind of characterise it in that way. But of course, of course we, we could. These are all about benefits and, benefits and costs. That's really fascinating. So um, I'd like to get on to the, you know, the Me Too movement. Um, but before that, I'd like to ask... So, you know, through the global financial crisis, um, one of the one of the phrases that was being bandied around was that if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters, we wouldn't have had the sort of crisis that we had. Do you think that's right? I think I think that's a really difficult um, question to answer, in the sense that. When you, when you look at the individual level of women's interest in risk-taking, particularly around these kinds of decisions, you don't tend to find the kind of difference that, that would justify that. But at the same time, I think the problem with, part of the problem with the psychology in this area is it is so focused on the individual and thinking of the individual as something that you just add up individuals in a sort of very simplistic way and not thinking about how changing the finance industry from something which is sort of hyper-masculine to something that was actually had gender balance and gender equality and how that might influence the culture. Um, you know, Julie Nelson, the economist, says, you know, that would be a sign that this was an industry that might no longer stigmatise these sort of traditionally feminine qualities like carefulness um, and, and caution. Um, so it's you know it's impossible to imagine that a finance industry dominated by women would look just the same as one dominated by men. But I think at the same time, one has to be careful about that that sort of characterisation of women as being the you know the sort of the ones who are there to temper the excitement and risk taking of the men. It's like you know the men will lead the charge and the women are there to kind of go. Oh, but, you know, have we thought about this? Have we thought about that? As, as opposed to being kind of bold, bold leaders in their own right. But at the same time, I think, you know, 
well, you know, I don't know what you think about sort of board, board dynamics and the creation of different voices and dissent and the value that that can, that can bring to decision-making, not having people who are perhaps very, very cosy with each other uh, and the benefit of breaking that up a bit. I mean, you yeah. might have... Something I'm passionate about, diversity, mm. and particularly gender diversity on boards. Um, it's interesting because we've got Ariane and Susan here from Scale Angel Network because one of the areas that I'm involved with is around funding women entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, I think, what is it, something like 2 or 3% of venture capital goes to women entrepreneurs. I may be under, overstating that a little bit, but um, a very small fraction of all venture capital goes to women-led businesses, and you hear feedback from women entrepreneurs um, who are very often asked why their businesses aren't going to fail, as opposed to the interviews with the male entrepreneurs is, gee, that's exciting, you know, what, what does success look like for you? Why do you think there's that sort of difference? I think they're very... The, the, the stereotype of the entrepreneur is very much sort of overlapping with masculine stereotypes. And, you know, I think this comes back to the idea of the risk, the risk taker and who's a risk taker. Well, it's, it's a man, not a woman. And I think that is, you know, that's one of the areas where this dialogue of around women being risk averse is, um, is potentially very harmful. And, you know, the, the, you know, the behavioral studies that we have, you know, presenting identical pitch, whether it's by a man versus a woman, makes a big difference to, to how it's evaluated. I think it's just one of those many instances of unconscious bias where somebody looks looks better for the for the role than another. And I, I just, one thing I also have to say, Carol, is that there's sort of growing interest in, you know, trying to link interest and success and entrepreneurship to the amount of testosterone that people are exposed to in utero. I mean, the idea that you can sort of... Um, you know, not with great success to date, but there is this idea that, you know, there's this sort of, some, this biology aspect of male biology that, that, that sort of drives them to, to become successful entre, entrepreneurs. And it's, it's based on very problematic scientific assumptions, but that's such as, the, such as the power of this link between masculinity and entrepreneurship. And we touched on the, the Me Too movement. What, what's your opinion of, of, of what's going on with the Me Too movement? Look, I, it's... I suppose because of the teaching that I do at the business school, I, 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 often, I often think about it through that frame of the stories that one hears are so shocking uh, but you know that there are powerful norms at play that enable those kinds of things to happen. And um, I suppose from, from that perspective, it's about thinking about this very difficult, hard work of cultural change, which, you know, will involve people speaking up and creating new norms and sending very, very powerful messages. And I think it's, again, it's an instance where the status quo sort of shapes our perception of the, of the costs. So, uh, you know, there was an article in The Economist a few months ago about this, and they were sort of pointing out that there's, you know, we think about some people are untouchable because they bring in so many grants or so much business or so much profit, 
And what we don't what we forget about is all those talented women who who leave the organisation um, or whose careers are stifled in some way. That kind of that risk is invisible to us in a way that this more immediate potential loss isn't. And I think, you know, justice issues aside, um, I think that's another way in which the status quo kind of shapes shapes the way that we perceive that perceive that issue. Yeah, and um, I guess, um, well, obviously, sexual harassment is so much more than unconscious bias. I mean, right. you mentioned unconscious bias before. Can you talk a little bit about unconscious bias and and why it is so entrenched and why it is so difficult to shift, notwithstanding we now have an, an awareness of it and training programs and there's quite a big focus on it, and yet it's still so persistent. It is, I mean, I, as a psychologist, I suppose I say that, you know, there's no such thing as immaculate perception, so we, we, we have this, such a strong sense that our perception of the world is objective and yet it isn't. Everything is sort of pre-processed through, by, by our minds and our minds have been you know, gendered since, essentially, since we, since we were born. And, um, but I think actually coming back, to connecting this to the Me Too um, um, sort of tolerance for that kind of behaviour, one thing that, um, that I've become interested in in the work of my PhD student is um, trying to connect this large literature that we have on these unconscious biases with these sort of underlying beliefs that people have about, you know, that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. So is it the case that you see it as, as you know, men are just fundamentally wired to be in a particular kind of way? Does that make you more susceptible to particular kinds of unconscious bias? And one of the things that we found with Nick Haslam and Leah Skews in, in Denmark is that people who hold those kinds of you know, boys will be boys beliefs are a little bit less comfortable with a, a, a female politician who expresses power and ambition seeking, for example. And I think these sort of underlying beliefs about, um, you know, the nature of men and women and why they, why the way they are, which is sort of has been the, the, the target of my work for the past 10 years. I, th I think that's maybe somewhere that we need to think as organisations about perhaps intervening on as well as this unconscious bias. So unconscious bias training kind of focuses on what we think men and women are like, you know, making sure that when you're evaluating men and women that you're actually truly seeing the merit equally of, of both. But the, the ideas about the nature of men and women get to something a bit more visceral, visceral which is not just what men and women are like, but what men and women should be like. And I, I think that may be a sort of further interesting, you know, important step for organisations to start, start thinking about. And when you think about, you know, the next great frontier in feminism is probably going to be men participating more in, in fatherhood and, and caring, and they actually face a great deal of discrimination when they try and seek flexibility to do that in the workplace. And part of that is, this is not what men should do. Interesting. Now, as I mentioned before, you and I were involved in a debate on quotas. A heated debate at times. <laughs> yes, and um, you said something really interesting to me after that debate, because you said that um, you were not really a supporter of quotas, or traditionally or historically, but your, your view was changing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
think it's just with. I think as you get older, you feel like you have less and less, uh, uh, less and less um, confidence in the idea of meritocracy. Perhaps that's part of it. Um, yeah, I, I, it, there's. I think you, you, there's that frustration of. I think this idea of the, the the need for the the radical intervention that things do not change organically without something um, a bit more powerful. And you know, when the when the Google memo controversy hit the hit the um, headlines last year, as you might recall, the, the the engineer at Google wrote a memo saying that, look, didn't science show that women were less interested in technical careers, they're less cut out for leadership roles, um, and you know, to strive for equality in technology was to really threaten to compromise merit because women aren't, on average, cut out for these kinds of roles. And, and you know, so there's all this debate about the science, and, and I just thought, do we still have to, I, I, I say this as someone who's spent 10 years sort of debating the science, but it's like, haven't we had enough now? Isn't it just time to, isn't it just time to get on with it? Yeah. And um, how about the myth of merit? What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the fears around targets and quotas are around the compromising of merit. And I just, I think, I think one of the, great contributions of the sort of business case arguments has been this sort of let's take a bit of a closer look at what we actually mean by merit and it's not actually just replicating exactly what's been there before and and I think I've become more aware of how that sort of bias towards seeing masculine traits as the more positive ones, I've become more aware of that myself. I mean, I think about the way that we frame some of these scientific conversations, for example, with, you know, does testosterone make women less confident? And, and you think, well, it's funny, isn't it? Because in the business school, the first bias that you teach about is the overconfidence bias. And if it's really true that, um, you know, a woman only applies for a job when she fulfills all the criteria and a man applies when he fulfills half, it's like, why... Why don't women, women get every single job that they apply for and men get none? I mean, um, so I think this... That's because they say that um, um, men are promoted on potential, potential and yes. women promoted on performance. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I've, sorry, I've lost my train of thought You were now. talking about merit. Yes, merit. So I think, um, I think you know, in the scientific field, we need to move away. Um, there's a sort of assumption always that there's this burden of proof on women. So when you look at the differences between women and men and the kinds of characteristics that are relevant to jobs, often they're trivially small or they're, you know, they don't add up in ways that create distinctive kinds of people. So we're sort of increasingly sort of scrabbling at, at straws to try and explain the, the inequalities that we that we see. Um, and the idea that we have this sort of really rigorous scientific view of exactly what will make someone successful in a role, I think is, is more comforting than, than accurate. Yeah. It's interesting, I, I spoke at um, an organisation this morning about that very issue and about recruiting um, people for jobs a little bit laterally and creatively and, and looking for characteristics that will actually um, add value to the role as opposed to putting in somebody who's got exactly the same characteristics and experience as the person before. Um, because real diversity is when you have 
different people coming in with different attributes who are actually going to look at a problem somewhat differently and, and look to create solutions in a, in a whole new way. Well, I think that's, just, in a sense, that's the sort of under, the, the sub-story of my book is there's so many of the scientists who did this work that challenged old ingrained assumptions and progressed science as a result, they were so often women. And it's not because women do have a sort of special way of doing a science, but they were probably just thinking, I, you know, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. And uh, they, they thought about these assumptions and they they collected different data and they asked different questions and they progressed the science. And I'm, you know, this is going to be true um, in all kinds of industries and roles. And I think part of the um, arguments about gender equality are probably going to be around not just, you know, thinking about what are the products and the services that we're creating? What is the value that creating is, and is it serving everyone equally? And I, you know, I look around this incredible exhibition and I think, thank goodness we had these women artists to, to create um, these wonderful pieces of art. And, you know, I feel the same about science, and I'm sure everyone here who is in a particular industry, um, you know, thinks about distinctive contributions that were made because people came with different kinds of questions and what that can add to an institution or, or an organisation. Or, in the case of art, uh, the conversation that, that society is having at a particular time. I guess the interesting thing about women artists is that they're so under-collected and under-represented by our institutions. It's, it's actually quite interesting. So I should open up for questions. Um, does anybody have a question that they would like to ask Cordelia? Ariane. Oh, can you, yeah, that would be good. Ariane, do you want to introduce yourself? Certainly. Ariane Barker from Scale Investors, um, where I've just joined, and thank you, Carol. Um, it's a fantastic organization supporting female entrepreneurs and investors looking to get back gender balance and female-led startups. Cordelia, I was interested in what got you into the, your field originally. Was there a moment in your childhood or in your educational journey where you just thought, this is what I really want to be focusing on? Because it's such an interesting space and you clearly have such forensic knowledge around it. I was curious, what was the tipping point for you? Yeah, I can actually identify the, the, the very moment. So I, was, um, I have two children. And when they were, um, before they went to school, I was, you know, as a typical academic, I read a lot of books. If there was a book called The Over-Researched Child, I would have read it. Um, you know, they'd come and, mummy, mummy, hush, I'm reading How to Be a Better Parent. So, um, and one of the books I read was saying, you know, was arguing that because of hardwired brain differences between boys and girls, we should parent, we should parent them differently and we should educate them differently. And, you know, I, just, I came to this book thinking, oh, well, this is really fascinating, I, I must read this. And, you know, the author started to mention parts of the brain that I'd studied quite intensively in my PhD. I thought, oh, this is interesting, and nobody was talking about this when I did my PhD. So I looked up the studies being cited in the back, and one of the great things, of course, about being an academic is you actually do have access to these journal articles. And so I started to read some of the scientific studies, and I was really appalled by the disconnection between what the science actually showed and what was being said in this, this book. And so I started to look at other popular books about gender differences that were really capturing this excitement around functional neuroimaging at the time. You know, you can see bits of brains lighting up and they light up differently in men and women. And basically, there were these sort of 
old-fashioned gender stereotypes were being projected onto these brain data. Look, what we always suspected all along has been proven without doubt by this fancy, by this fancy science. And because at the time I was employed in a, on a grant to do with neuroethics, which is looking at how the new neuroimaging technologies were changing our conception of ourselves, I became really fascinated in how this, these sort of claims of sex differences and brain activation or brain structure were kind of in, in interplay with gender stereotypes. And so um, I started to you know, read more popular books and, and start to look into it more closely. But I think the moment where I thought I have to write a book proposal and write this book was... Um, when my son's kindergarten teacher sort of had this first, very first book that I'd read and was sort of recommending it to, to parents. And it was that sense of wanting to, feeling, you know, the horror that there was so much misinformation out there in the, in the popular literature and knowing at the same time that, you know, you can write academic articles, but nobody except, you know, a few handful of people will, will read them. And so I really wanted to write an accessible book uh, that address this issue. When I came to look at the science itself, I found that there were all sorts of issues in how the science itself was being conducted, and that was sort of surprising to me in my naivety, and I had to go back and explain to the publisher this was going to be a much more complicated and actually, as it turned out, you know, a more controversial book because I was criticising criticizing the science itself, but it was, a, you know, a very important part of, part of the picture. And... And then I just, I just got hooked. I became really hooked on how our cultural assumptions about gender influence the scientific process and then feed back into our, into our beliefs and the, and the harm that that can do. This, this is such a vivid ex exhibit for me, the, the books yeah. up, on, up on the wall, that the power of all those sort of supposed sources of authority and knowledge. Um, yeah. Well, with the books, of course, you know, the, a fantastic prize for Australian women writers has actually um, been around now for five years, the Stella mm. Prize, and that actually came out of um, absolute outrage, and I remember I was one of those very outraged um, when we went to a Miles Franklin Award, and of course, as you would all know, Miles Franklin is a female writer who had to write under a male pseudonym. And um, the, three, uh, the three previous years of shortlist had all been male writers who'd been shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Prize, which was so ironic and so outrageous um, that the Stella Prize was born and has been going from strength to strength. Alana. Um, a microphone's coming your way. Thank you for a very thought-provoking discussion. We spend so much time trying to address inequity and inequality of opportunity, you know, in the workplace and in organisations, and it strikes me that we're just fighting against these, you know, a product of generations of socialisation. So if you had to pick one or two public policy changes that would really address this almost not inbred but imposed social and cultural distinction between you know boys and girls men and women what would you recommend this might be a question for you rather than me carol i think mandatory parental leave for men that's a good one yeah i think that's a me too <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a fabulous one because that's a, just normalising having a life and interdependencies, just normalising it. I, I think, yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's a yeah, great because one. Because it is, you brought up before, it's a huge issue for men as well and, and, and it's not fair. In this um, organisation that I spoke at this morning, you know, I was looking at the guys and I was saying, you know, the men in this organisation are not taking advantage of the flexibility that's being offered because they're worried about um, being seen as not being serious and committed to their, to their jobs and their, their work, which is absolutely not true. And it's important that men participate in, in family life. I mean, why should men miss out on, you know, being with their children or being with their families in some way? It's, it's, it's just not fair. It's not right. Question here, this gentleman in the front. And I think we'll make that our last question. Well, howdy, and uh, thank you. Um, so my question was building off of, um, of Anna's question. Alana's. Alana, apologies. Um, so uh, I was wondering about your thoughts on societies that, are, that you talked about critical intervention. So societies like, say, Sweden, where they've taken, for the youngest generation, they've taken away the male and female pronouns and are using, instead of hem and hair, are using hen for all children. And how you think that will a, a affect this generation and if you think that's a pathway towards gender, uh, better gender equality or if they're doing this maybe in an unwise way. Um, but it's also a country where you see men finally for this first maybe past 10 years actually starting to take a uh, much greater part in child rearing. And there was an article in New York Times, I think, a couple weeks ago that was talking about the fact that that women, once they have, are, are on the same path as men until they have children, and they see a 20% decline in their salaries and their income forever after. So I know that's a bunch of different things, mm -hmm. but my, the first and primary one was about the, about the gender roles of children there and, and, the, and the forced use of a gender-neutral pronoun. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, I think your question really speaks to the, to the need, you know, you can intervene at, at one level, but gender is such a sort of powerful force in society that, you know, it, it's got so much redundancy built into it. But, and I think it, but I think it's actually easy to underestimate um, the importance of what happens at, in those early years. So, um, you know, one, one of the, I think this actually brings back to the very first question that you asked, Carol, around this, well, my daughter plays with, with um, you know, dolls or princesses. And there's actually interesting evidence showing now that what, what was sort of previously attributed to early testosterone in terms of girls who are exposed to very high levels sort of playing with more masculine toys actually seems to be um, something that makes them just less likely to follow the, the modelling and the lead of um, women and women and girls. So from just from, from, even from a very early age, children become very aware of their gender identity, uh, which isn't surprising given how we emphasise gender in everyday life. And that starts to play a very powerful role in the kinds of things that they're interested in. Um, and, and of course, we give them a lot of information about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl. And I think, although there can be a lot of fear around the, this, this idea of sort of de-gendering childhood, I think it really, in a sense, it's just a way of letting children's interests develop in a way that is 
um, not so powerfully influenced by this very, very powerful social identity that we have, which for children is one of the few that they have. So as adults, we have lots of social identities. We have one as you know, parents and um, you know, sporting people or academics or, or you know, so on, whereas children basically have their children and they're a boy or, or a girl, and that's really all they have. And so gender is a particularly powerful one for them. Um, so I do think, and th that's where those early gender stereotypes that are basically the, the basis of both conscious and unconscious forms of discrimination in the workplace, for example, that's where those kinds of powerful associations that create these forms of unconscious bias, that's where they start. And, and there's a sort of irony that we're in the sort of 21st century and we have, you know, supposedly now, unlike any time in history, whether you're male or female shouldn't make a difference, and yet at the same time we have the most intensive gendering of our children's environments than, than we have seen. It's more intensive than in the 1950s. So, you know, there's arguments about social engineering, but, you know, what we have now is a form of social engineering. It's a, it's a way of saying, here's a thing called gender, and it's a really important part of, of who you are. Um, with regards to your other question, I think this comes back to risks and benefits. I mean, when you, when you make sacrifices to get on in your career, you're thinking, what are the likely benefits and what, what are my likely chances of success? And I think if you look up and you don't see many people like you, people with, you know, mothers with, with children, it's really hard to have confidence that, you know, sacrificing that spare time or that family time will bear fruit in the end. I mean, when you... Um, I think Iris Bonnet makes this point that if you're a young lawyer and you see sort of 50% women and men at entry and then you look up and you see four or five times as many male partners as female partners, it's really hard to have the same degree of confidence that if you work hard, you'll get there, you'll get there too. So I think it's about, again, comes back to this risk-taking of those calculations are actually quite gendered if you have an unequal, unequal world. That was a great answer. Thank you so much, Cordelia. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, would you join me in thanking Cordelia Farm? You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, Visit aka.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.